It's cold, it's dark, and I've been spending a lot of time alone in my house. My guess is you have too. Surprising no one, a growing body of research suggests that loneliness and what researchers call biophobia, that is, avoiding nature and interactions with living things, may actually be linked. This connection between isolation from others and not wanting to leave the safety of the indoors raises all sorts of questions about how we're living, especially men. Because while women may be lonely, study after study shows that men are even lonelier, with few social ties, close friends, and a much higher rate of suicide. The theme of loneliness has been in my mind because for season two of Non-Toxic, you're just going to have one host, me, Daniel Penny. Andrew is going to become our producer, and he'll be a guest on the show, but you won't hear his dulcet tones on the regular. To get an update from Andrew, I gave him a call. He's working on some great projects, and I thought non-toxic listeners would want to hear what he's been up to. So yeah, what's what's up, man? It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Got married. Congratulations. Thank you. I saw the um, pictures in Iceland. It looked quite uh, sublime. And stormy. It's very stormy. But no, it was great. That's, that's it was, good luck, right? I mean, it's when you're planning on having a wedding in Iceland, you need to be prepared for bad weather. And what have you been up to since you got back, man? Just trying to get back in the groove, really. Uh, got a few big projects. Just finished the story for Outside Magazine, which was long time in the making. Um hopefully for Outside Magazine. I've been working on this project about a 17-year-old kid that was convicted of a triple murder in Tucson, Arizona in 1993. Uh, it's a film project. I've been like the producer for it. So I've been out there a few times in the past year being a complete terror to the Pima County District Attorney's Office with a massive public records request. So they really hate me there. <laughs> That sounds like you've been pretty busy then. So I can understand why you've got to step away a bit from non-toxic. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Got to not be so spread thin, you know. It was it was an honor to to be behind the mic, so. Okay, we'll keep your chair warm for you. I'll always be a background shadow producer. I'm the behind the curtain guy. Okay. I know that you're going to come back on the show as a guest this season. And I think, you know, we can look forward to an episode where maybe you take us into the gritty local politics of New Jersey to understand up close and personal what is happening between NIMBYs, fishermen, green energy proponents, right-wing conspiracy theorists, and some mysterious whale deaths. They're all like right here in Ocean City. I have a massive interview with uh, the woman who basically started the whole opposition. And this is to the offshore windmills. Yeah. Her best line was when when I asked her about the Koch brothers related entity that's supporting them with like amplification on social media. Mm -hmm. I asked her about, you know, money that's coming from them to her her local group. And she said, I don't care because the the fact is that and I've talked to David and his crew about this. The fact is they take a $4,000 a year grant from the Koch brothers. I don't have a problem with that. I don't care if it's dripping in oil when it gets there. <laughs> I said, all right. I said, are you sure you want to say that? I like actually gave her a chance to like. 
Oh, I would retract that. I would never give someone a chance to retract a juicy quote like that. Well, I'm sorry to have you depart as co-host, but I get that you've got a lot of other things going on. And I'm really excited to hear about these other projects you're working on as well. So keep me updated on what's going on with the whales and we'll we'll find a slot for you later in the season. Take care, man. See you, man. All right. Welcome to Non-Toxic, Season 2, Episode 1. I'm your host, Daniel Penny. So on this episode of Non-Toxic, we're asking, is the cure to male loneliness hanging out with your bros at the park? To find out, I spoke with Hannah Seo, freelance journalist, writer, editor, fact-checker, and poet based in Brooklyn. She recently completed a reporting fellowship with the New York Times. Her beats include oceans, climate change, and mental health. Her recent article in The Atlantic is called America is Getting Lonelier and More Indoorsy, and that's not a coincidence. Here's Hannah reading the intro. My Brooklyn apartment is designed for sterility. The windows have screens to keep out bugs. I chose my indoor plants specifically because they don't attract pests. While commuting to other, similarly aseptic, indoor spaces, co-working offices, movie theaters, friends' apartments, I'll skirt around pigeons, avert my eyes from a gnarly rat, shudder at the odd scuttling cockroach. But once I'm back inside, the only living beings present, I hope, and at least as far as I know, are the ones I've chosen to interact with, namely, my partner and the low-maintenance snake plant on the windowsill. My aversion to pigeons, rats, and cockroaches is somewhat justifiable, given their cultural associations with dirtiness and disease. But such disgust is part of a larger estrangement between humanity and the natural world. As nature grows unfamiliar, separate, and strange to us, we are more easily repelled by it. Hanasio, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great that you were able to come on, especially so quickly after you published this really interesting article in The Atlantic. I've been thinking about it a lot because I guess I've been thinking about loneliness and it's something that comes up quite frequently in studies about men and mental health and the way that you linked loneliness with time spent indoors or away from nature just seemed like really obvious, but then also this missing piece of the puzzle that a lot of researchers haven't quite found. So I thought maybe we could just start with that correlation between increasing loneliness and this aversion to nature, which you say has been trending upwards for decades. How did you stumble upon this link between spending time indoors and loneliness? Yeah, so this piece was sort of born out of this long line of thinking that has kind of been swirling in my brain for a little bit. A friend of mine, Eleanor Cummins, wrote a piece over the summer for the New Republic. I think the head was something like, uh, we're all bad neighbors now. Something about how our ideas of personal space are shrinking and therefore when people violate our idea of what is ideal proximal space, 
whether that's like a stranger knocking on your door when you don't think they should be or when they're driving into your driveway and you feel afraid. Sometimes that can lead to violent incidences. And I was thinking about this as we talked about this sort of subject. And to me, this idea of personal space and trying to like really strongly dictate what exists or does not exist in your comfortable sphere, it felt really similar to how like I or friends of mine sort of react when we see a bug in the house or if we are outside and we feel like a spider web on our face. And I was thinking about this, these parallels, and it really seemed to me like it all kind of centered around the same principle where we're all just trying to control our immediate environment and therefore pushing things that are uncomfortable out. But by doing that, the things that are outside become more alien to us because we are not experiencing them or encountering them. And so I started digging into the research and it not only confirmed that these are both like parallel phenomena, but they are also interrelated. And and so I was like, okay, this is great. This makes so much sense to me. And I and I had to get that down and write it write about it. One of the key concepts that you talk about is this idea of biophobia. And you look at the work of Masashi Soga, who's an ecologist at the University of Tokyo. And this is, I guess, one of his research specializations. What exactly does he mean by this term? And who's most likely to feel this way towards nature? And what's his explanation for all of it? Mm -hmm. Biophobia is, has kind of different definitions depending on who you talk to. How it's defined in that paper and in his research is an, a sort of fear or disgust response in reaction to natural settings or situations or animals, creatures. Other people define it a little more broadly or abstractly, saying that it's like a general fear or disgust of living beings generally, so I guess including humans. But for his research purposes, it mostly is just around like the idea of the natural setting. And in his work, he's done some really interesting research looking at how First of all, that biophobia is a cycle. He has one paper called The Vicious Cycle of Biophobia, kind of saying how if you are fearful of nature and natural settings, you avoid it. And then that avoidance kind of reinforces that dislike because in your brain, you're sort of reinforcing that this is a negative thing that should be avoided. And so you avoid it and then you think I'm avoiding it because it's negative and so it must be negative and then I have to avoid it more. And so it just kind of compounds and like swirls on it, in on itself. He also has other research showing that um, urbanization is linked to biophobia. So places where urbanization is growing faster or has progressed to a greater degree in those places, people are more likely to um, experience biophobia. And I think that research specifically looked at people's feelings towards insects and bugs. Yeah, I think it's almost natural these days for people to say like, spider, bug, like you, that's an expected reaction. But I think for most of human history, unless a spider or a bug was like known to people as being poisonous, they probably didn't freak out when they saw one. So this is actually quite a new behavior that we are exhibiting. Yeah. Something that I think about is actually earlier this year, I visited, I visited a friend of mine who lives in kind of rural France and she keeps all of her doors and windows open at all times and she has a cat that's an outdoor cat and her cat will sometimes kill large bugs or mice field mice and bring them into the house and I was like oh my god like I can't believe you let that happen and she was like it's fine it's like I'll just throw it out and you know this is how this is how things are and that really struck me as well as I was thinking about all of this just how 
really our fears are just socialized, right? They're socialized, they're and they're normalized, and what our standard is for normal can change and flux so easily if we let it. You talked about this insight from a 1993 essay by environmental studies researcher and activist David Orr, who wrote, more than ever, we dwell in and among our own creations and are increasingly uncomfortable with the nature that lies beyond our direct control. And you mentioned control at the very top of our conversation. I'm curious, is this biophobia connected to our increasing ability to control our environment think through things like smart homes and the way that, you know, it seems like houses and apartments are increasingly sealed off compared to the way that your friend was living in France with her open windows and doors and her cat roaming in and out. <laughs> so it's like this idea of like a permeable or impermeable membrane seems very important. Right. And I think if you ask David Orr about this, I think he would 100% agree. He mentions also in that essay, he talks about things like air conditioning, how we are so intolerant of being even slightly uncomfortable in our own bodies and how that sort of is a tension against embracing outdoor settings where we can't control our microclimate. And and that is, I think that's that plays into directly what you're saying about these hard barriers where we can kind of say, this is my space and this is the space that I can control. This episode of Non-Toxic is sponsored by Blue Corn Candles, a Colorado-based company that's been making handcrafted beeswax candles since 1991. Most candles in the market are made of paraffin, a diesel byproduct that's literally scraped from the bottom of the barrel. Blue corn candles are made from sustainably harvested and lightly filtered beeswax. The candles smell great, burn super slowly, and most importantly, they don't produce any toxic fumes. For the first time, Blue Corn has launched a new line of scented candles based on the rugged landscapes of Colorado. From the sagebrush-covered foothills of Ridgeway to the pine forests of Telluride, during these dark months, Blue Corn is running a special deal for non-toxic listeners. Enter the code NONTOXIC, that's one word, all caps, at checkout to receive 10% off your order, shipping within the U.S. and internationally. And now, back to our show. I want to change the topic a little bit from biophobia to loneliness, which is the other side of this coin. You mentioned U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy calls loneliness an epidemic and that loneliness affects both mental and physical health. Here, where I'm living right now in the U.K., there have been several government commissions and reports on loneliness, and there's even a minister of loneliness. How far back does the research go on loneliness in the U.S. or in other countries? Is this a relatively recent phenomenon? A really interesting resource to look at the trends of loneliness across time are kind of in the book Bowling Alone by the political scientist Robert Putnam. It's a really like, I don't know if you've read it, but it's just like a huge tome and it has so many trends. I also think that like we should maybe add the caveat that how you measure loneliness or how you interpret the trends of loneliness can really vary depending on how you are measuring loneliness. So in the piece, I cite this one like data point where Robert Putnam writes that from the 1970s to the late 1990s, Americans went from entertaining friends at home about 15 times a year to just eight. And so that we could use that as kind of a stand in for 
are decreasing socialization, but at the same time, like that one trend doesn't necessarily encapsulate all of what it means to be a lonelier society. Like and Americans there... probably go out to eat more now than they did, or in the 1990s even, than they did in the 1970s. And so it's like, is that socialization just happening at a restaurant instead of at your house? Right, right. And then you have to like add in all the factors of like, oh, are people only eating out with their families or their partners? Or are what are the, what are the party sizes of going out to eat? And, and so there are just so many like different trends and different data points that we can latch onto. But I do think an interesting point is that in socialization trends, I think the things that persist are often things that are maybe more associated with um, women or femininity. So a related thing that I'm really interested in is gossip. And gossip is kind of seen as like a very feminine trait or a very feminine quality. But there are studies that show that gossip is actually a really valuable tool to not only build like a sense of camaraderie and rapport, but it also is a means of information sharing. And that feels sort of related in that a lot of, I think, the existing or or enduring socialization circles or settings have more feminine connotations. Like I think of book clubs, you know, book clubs are still around. I know several people in book clubs, but everybody who I know who is in a book club, I think, is a woman. <laughs> so well, men, I, men are in reading groups. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we tell ourselves. <laughs> oh, it's not a book club. It's a reading group. That's so funny. I had not even thought about that, but that's that's great. <laughs> I think that's kind of a niche. And evidence suggests loneliness is really acute among men. I've read statistics. American men, say, you know, way more than women say they don't have friends. Uh, they don't feel connected to their communities. And they are four times more likely to die by suicide than women. And suicide is often the sort of most extreme expression of loneliness and isolation. I thought maybe we could actually look at, um, of all things, an SNL sketch that really captures a lot of the themes of this article that you wrote and maybe offers some gestures towards some of the solutions that you talk about. So this came out, I think, two years ago, and it's called The, the Man Park. I remember this. Yeah, it was a good one. According to studies, many men say they have no close friendships, and three in four report receiving all their emotional support from their wife or girlfriend, often the moment they come home from work. Hi, how are you? I miss you. Am I balding? Dune? Okay, cool. Hi, honey. Vin Diesel has its twin brother. Honey. When I walk in the door, my husband sort of rockets information at me for 25 minutes straight. On a football team, there's 11 players, but with rugby, there's 15. And all the words come out fast and in the wrong order because he hasn't spoken to anyone else that day. I need you to go out of the house and make a friend so you talk to other people about this stuff and not just me. That's insane. Where would I even go? Finally, there's a place with Man Park. It's like a dog park but for guys in relationships, so they can make friends and have an outlet besides their girlfriends and wives. Rise and grind, rise and grind. <laughs> rise and grind, brother. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I felt like usually SNL isn't the place I go to for, for insightful cultural commentary these days, but uh, this one really hit home. <laughs> <laughs> 
And um, and I thought, oh, this actually is kind of the last third in some ways of the article. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how it is that researchers think we can get over this like biophobia and loneliness epidemic and what those solutions are for people who are basically hanging around inside. Yeah, I don't know if any of the researchers or experts that I spoke to would claim to have the solution for curing both biophobia and loneliness, but there were so many interesting links that people have observed in research. For example, one of my favorites was this one study showing that immigrants in Montreal, new immigrants in Montreal, would go outside to public parks and natural spaces. And it was a resource, a free resource, where they could meet other immigrants, meet their neighbors, and also just feel more connected to the place that was their new home. And a tidbit of this study, a tidbit from the study that didn't make it into the article was kind of related to like how we care for nature and how we socialize was that as they were outside and watching other Montrealers interact with the natural space, they would observe things like people picking up litter and recycling it and or, you know, just taking care of the space around them and observing those norms told those families, those new immigrant families, like, oh, this is how we take care of public spaces here. Like, this is um, a value that the community has is to recycle and um, and to take care of the earth in this way. And I thought that that was so interesting, like this idea, because it's true that this is how we learn norms. This is how we learn, like, what is welcome in, an, in a community is by observing other people and how they behave. One of the studies that you mentioned that I thought was particularly interesting and also so French was the one about the the glove falling. Yeah, it's a little whimsical. Yeah, it's a whimsical. It's like, this is something from Amelie. Yeah. <laughs> Could you just talk about that? Yeah, that is um, such a good, such a good experiment that they did and uh, so clever. So in this 2014 experiment from France, basically researchers observed as an actor walked by a stranger and dropped a glove. So this happened either inside a park or outside a park. And what they found was that if a person was in a park and they saw a stranger drop a glove in front of them and walk away, the people inside the park were more likely to pick up and return that glove to that stranger than the people who were outside the park and just about to enter the park. So essentially, the conclusion that was drawn from this research was that spending time in nature makes you more likely to be altruistic. Amazing. And one of the questions I also had, you know, you talk about how it increases feelings of belonging. So not just behavior, but like interior feelings, at least reported by participants in various studies. How does that work exactly? Like the idea that being in nature makes you feel a sense of belonging with other people. And then also, does it matter like what kind of natural space you're in, whether it's a public park or a private garden? Does that have an effect? Mm -hmm. So a, a term that you sort of see in this sort of research is transcendence. And transcendence can loosely be synonymous with belonging, but um, some people interpret it more as a sense of awe. And the idea was that when you spend time in nature or even just remembering thinking about nature, you don't have to be in nature. You just have to think about being in nature. You, 
it can increase or augment this idea of transcendence, which basically means that you feel like you are a small part of something bigger and greater. And this idea of transcendence sort of connects you to this idea of a greater world, which theoretically, this the exact mechanism here, I think, has not really been been found or like there's no real consensus about what exactly is happening here. But a consequence of transcendence is that you feel more connected to other people because you kind of realize that you're all just part of this greater sphere of the earth. And so it was interesting to me that you don't have to actually be in nature to experience transcendence. You only need to, you can even just remember being in nature and it can kind of like augment these feelings. Also, similar effects have been observed in people who are just in like public gardens or in like rooftop gardens or public gardens. And so it doesn't have to be like the wilderness. You don't have to be at the Grand Canyon. You don't have to be on this like big majestic hike. You can just be in a park or in a garden or just thinking about times that you spent in nature to kind of increase these feelings inside yourself. I feel like a lot of this conversation, even though it's been about connection, it's been focused on an individual level and you know, psychology innately is going to uh, focus on what's happening inside people's brains. I'm interested in zooming out for a moment and thinking a little bit about what the kind of social and policy implications are of these findings. You know, if the Surgeon General is talking about loneliness, it means that the government is trying to do something about loneliness. Same thing in the UK and in a lot of countries. Uh, and likewise, when it comes to green space, like that's really, obviously, if you're rich, right, you can have your own private garden. But if you're uh, a regular Joe, you need to rely on accommodations in public spaces. So like, what are the kind of recommendations or the changes that you think the research points to? Mm -hmm. One point that um, one of the people who I spoke to, Venice Jennings, who is one researcher who's done a lot of work in this area, she mentioned this, she, she's said this really salient point, which is that certain people feel welcome in nature. And that's because of people. People decide whether or not we feel welcome in nature. But then the flip side of that being, of course, like being in nature might make you feel a greater sense of belonging with people. But that first point, you know, people make you feel like whether you belong or not in nature is important because if you look at surveys of who participates in outdoor recreation, historically, like Black and Hispanic Americans, they're much less likely to participate in outdoor recreation because of things like racism or because of maybe like maybe advertising for certain parks or certain activities feature only white people who look like they're from Oregon and who have backpacks and dogs and all of that. And so I think inclusive messaging, inc including like who belongs in a park, who is welcome in a park, what sort of activities we host in a park or in other nat natural spaces, all of this, all of this sort of messaging and and just inclusive initiatives are important to sort of make it clear that everyone can kind of, everyone is welcome into these spaces and everyone is welcome to interact with nature, but also each other. So I guess on the flip side, the people who are probably most frequently associated with leisure activities and maybe even work in nature are, are like white men, right? Right. And, and exactly. they're the loneliest. 
reporting to various studies at the same time. So they must not be getting what they need from the natural world if they're experiencing the highest rates of loneliness. Mm -hmm. One point that I did come across in my reading was kind of to this point is that on one side, being in nature feel makes you feel like a greater sense of belonging, et cetera. But there is like a segment of the population who feels this sort of um, misanthropy where they kind of retreat into nature by themselves. They go on hikes by themselves. They're this like hermit sort of figure who who says like, I don't like people. I just like nature. And so they go out into nature by themselves. Like, and, like a Ted Kaczynski type. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and so I was curious about like whether or not this is this at all at odds with what we're talking about here with the connection between nature and people. First of all, there was there's not like a huge body of literature on this, but from what I could tell from my conversations with uh, researchers is that this is kind of more of an outlier and less of a rule and sort of like the retreat into nature is not necessarily driven by a love of nature itself, but maybe more just like a a repulsion by social interaction. And so there's a lot of nuance there that I don't know how to think about that or how to interpret that. And maybe that's sort of for a future bit of work. But I think it's an interesting kind of caveat inside this greater trend. I'm interested to hear, lastly, about how your own experiences map onto this article. I'm thinking a lot about how we all lived through COVID-19. And for those of us who were lucky enough not to have to work in, you know, as first responders or as farm laborers or something like that, those of us who could work indoors, we, as a consequence, experienced huge isolation and also a real disconnection from like public natural spaces. A lot of people were going to, you know, national parks and things like that, but especially for people who lived in cities and I was in New York during the first wave, there was this real sense that like you couldn't even walk on the sidewalk because other people were close to you and you'd have to step out into the street to avoid them. None of us really knew what proximity was safe. And and I'm curious, I guess, about the effect that had on you and, and thinking about this article, as well as kind of, you know, how your thinking has evolved or your own behaviors, how they've evolved in the years since then. Uh, a few years ago, I read How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. I don't know if you've read that book, but I loved it. I had never really seriously considered what it meant to have like neutral third spaces being available to people. And like the sad reality is like besides the public library, we have public parks and that is probably the only other place where you can spend a good amount of time and not expect to spend money or, you know, participate in some sort of transaction. And so ever since then, my relationship to parks has grown steadily as I've relied on it for different social settings. I also wonder about the limitations of, you know, only spending time in like a manicured natural park versus like being in like proper wilderness where there are other natural organisms that I might encounter because I don't know if my time in Prospect Park has helped my aversion to bugs, for example, you know, Prospect maybe Park it is. is. Prospect Park is technically a forest. That is true. That is true. Though, I mean, t I guess this is like a fault on my part in that I'm mostly spending my time on the lawns. <laughs> you got to get into the middle bit. 
Yeah, yeah. And so so like I I think it's maybe too I'm too close to I'm too in it to really know whether it's changing my relationship to you know, my own biophobia that I know that I still have. But I think it's something that like I actively do want to work on. You know, I do like camping, but I also don't like having a bug in my tent, you know? And so like what is that tension and I want to just really get into it more. <laughs> is this something that has involved relationships with other people like do you have a friend or a partner who's really into camping and you've been the reluctant camper and you have to kind of get over it in order to participate that's actually exactly what it is my partner has is not necessarily an experienced camper but it's something that he has been wanting to do more of and so my whole thing is like I'm happy to go along so long as I don't have to do like the planning (laughs) so I have been participating and really enjoying it but I think, you know, it's still like a journey that I'm still very much in the midst of. My last question is, I think, maybe a bit more speculative in a way, but I'm curious about the climate angle of all of this. You know, as we've increasingly entered into a biophobic society, what does that do in terms of our understanding of or appreciation for the effects of climate change and the other environmental crises that are intertwined with it, like, you know, the great species extinction and ocean acidification, all of those things. Because it it seems like if you don't interact with the natural world, then your sense of what you're losing is probably a lot less. Absolutely. I think any climate activist will tell you that the fight to mitigate climate change and to like create actions that slow down how we are affecting the planet none of that can be done with just individuals like this is such a community endeavor i really like this one quote that david orr wrote in that in his 1993 essay where he says the places in which the bonds between people and those between people and the natural world create a pattern of connectedness responsibility and mutual need those places are the ones where Um, nature will flourish. So essentially, this idea of mutual need exists not just between people and other people, but between people and the earth. A bottom line point in this article is that you cannot learn to care for something, whether those are your neighbors or whether that's your neighborhood or a local park. You can't learn to care for these things if you don't interact with them and learn about them and see them and even just like witnessing the natural spaces around you in tandem with witnessing your neighbors or your friends in those spaces, those two things inform how you care for the other one. And I think that like it behooves all of us to just expose ourselves more and more to both the strangers who live in our proximity and also expose ourselves to the natural spaces where we live. Hannah, that was great. Thank you so much for joining Non-Toxic. Thank you. One of the main ideas behind this podcast is that climate change and the damage it's doing to our planet isn't just a scientific or political problem. It's a cultural issue, even a personal one. Just telling people how hot the planet is getting or how bad that's going to be hasn't been very effective at changing minds, which is why I think it's worth looking at the way our beliefs about nature are shaped in more diffuse and sometimes unconventional ways and the way those beliefs about the natural world intersect with so many other facets of our lives. In the case of 
rising rates of loneliness and biophobia. One consequence is a lack of appreciation for what we're losing in the climate crisis, but also a lack of community and solidarity, which is necessary to change it. But there's an easy solution to this one. Text your friend to meet at the park in an hour. Go outside, smell the air, touch some grass or some snow, and take a walk together. Then maybe call your local government about starting a compost program, planting some more trees, building a bike lane, whatever. But it starts with going outside and talking to other people. As always, Non-Toxic is a production of Loose Thread Studios, hosted by me, Daniel Penny. Our producer for the show is Andrew Lewis. Music is by Nathan Sharp. Art is by Sam Creasy. Our sponsor this season is Blue Corn Candles. If you'd like to support Non-Toxic, and we could really use it, please visit our Patreon where you can sign up to become a patron at a few different levels. If you're looking for something for a belated holiday gift, maybe it's a non-toxic subscription. You can find all the information for that at patreon.com slash non-toxic podcast. See you next week.